This podcast is brought to you by the American Thoracic Society. We help the world breathe. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Out of the Blue podcast. My name is John Fleetham and I'm Professor of Medicine at the University of British Columbia, Vancouver, Canada. Today I'm joined by Molly Franke, who's the senior author of a paper, Effectiveness of Vodacrine Use Beyond Six Months in Patients with Multi-Drug-Resistant Tuberculosis, which was recently published in the Blue Journal. We're also joined by Dr. James Bruce, who wrote the Associated Editorial. Dr. Franke is an associate professor at the Department of Global Health and Social Medicine at Harvard School, Boston. And Dr. Bruce is professor of medicine at Albert Einstein College of Medicine in, in New York. Now, we, before we discuss the paper, I'd like to start with a couple of general questions about bedaclin. James, when was bedaclin first introduced and what's it currently approved for? Thanks, John. The bedaclin was approved by the FDA in 2012, actually, and by the European Medicines Association, uh, Agency in 2014. And it's approved for the treatment of adults, adults with multidrug resistant tuberculosis for whom an effective treatment regimen is not available. And that, that clause has been interpreted differently over time. You know, in 2012, the standard of care was this horrible cocktail of injectable agents that were very toxic, made you deaf, a lot of oral drugs that you had to take multiple, multiple pills. And over time, and, and so then the bedaclin was the exception. The idea if you couldn't take that regimen or if you weren't eligible for it for some reason, you could get bedaclin. But now the kind of the tide has changed, and, you know, we'll say more about this later, but now that more people have gotten it and we realize it's a, it's a safer, better option, it's now considered standard. Since 2018, it's actually standard of care. And it's being given off-label to children and, and, and so forth as well. Like it just is. So what it's approved for and how it's used don't always mesh. So it was initially approved by the FDA with a, a blank box warning. And I, I must admit, I had to look that up. So how safe is bedaclin and, and what precautions need to be taken when you prescribe it? Yeah, so it's important to point out again that in 2012, bedaclin was approved by the FDA based on the results of three small phase two studies. It got accelerated approval. And the total number of people who had gotten bedaclin at that point was about 350. That's it. But because outcomes in MDRTB were so terrible, we needed this drug, and it, and it got this approval with kind of the expectation that more studies would, would be done in the interim. But one of those small trials, which had about 80 people in, in each arm, was randomized to bedaclin or placebo plus an optimized background regimen. And although treatment success was much greater in the bedaclin arm, there were actually more deaths in the bedaclin arm as well. There were 10 deaths versus two deaths. And the study investigators, this was the drug company, you know, itemized how each person died, and it didn't look like it was related to a drug effect. One person had alcoholic cirrhosis, one person had septic peritonitis, one person had an acute MI with an occluded LAD at autopsy, but, but they really couldn't explain the difference. And for that reason, this, this unexplained difference in mortality got, got a black box warning. So that, the, the black box warning actually has two parts. One is the increased mortality, and then the other is that it prolongs the QT interval ECGs. And again, given this unexplained death difference, that QT prolongation made people nervous. And so that also appears in the black box warning. So how effective is bedenkron? 
vary, I would say. But again, like, so the data that we have on this is, you know, MDRTB is treated with combination therapy, multiple drugs given all together. So it can be hard to tease out the effect of one specific drug. And it's been a moving field over time. So the, the, the first real data we had on this was this big meta-analysis that was done, an individual patient data meta-analysis run by Dick Menzies at McGill. And he cobbled together basically all the observational data, the extant published data at the time, and looked at sort of people who had gotten bedaquiline and people who hadn't. Now, this is across, you know, 25 countries, 50 different studies. Most of those people hadn't gotten bedaquiline, but in the people who did, he compared those to the people who didn't and showed a significant, you know, the odds ratio for treatment success was 2.5 if you got bedaquiline, and the odds of death were 50% compared to those who didn't. But that's not a randomized trial. That's, that's a regression analysis, right? It's not comparing one regimen versus another. But it was the best data we had in 2018, and it was very promising. Since then, though, there have been a number of newer trials just in the past year. We've got the Xenix trial, TB Practical, Stage 2 of the STREAM study, BTB, all looking at different combinations of bedaquiline. But, but now the combinations are different with newer drugs, better drugs like linazolid and protominid and so forth, with treatment success rates of 80 to 90 percent, which was unheard of at the time, back when bedaquiline was approved. So again, I would, so my, my short answer, too late, to your question of is how effective is bedaquiline, I would say when given as part of a strong regimen, it's very, it's very, very effective. So thank you. Now, now let's move to the paper. Molly, what were the objectives of your study? Thanks so much, John. So the overall objective of our study was really to address one of the outstanding knowledge gaps with regard to the effectiveness of bedaquiline and specifically use the effectiveness of use beyond six months among patients that were receiving longer individualized regimen for multidrug or rifampin-resistant tuberculosis. So initial guidance for bedaquiline use in the context of longer individualized regimens recommended a duration of six months. And this was the duration that was studied in two of the pivotal randomized trials of bedaquiline. And so this initial guidance was based on a lack of additional evidence on the safety and effectiveness of bedaquiline beyond this period. Now, in the following years, um, after the initial approval, evidence quickly emerged that bedaquiline use beyond six months was safe, but there remained li limited evidence on effectiveness, really due to a lack of studies, but one analysis of observational data did actually highlight the potential for bias in studying this question in observational data sets. Um, due to the fact that bedaquiline tends to be prescribed for longer durations among individuals who tend to be more sick. And so in this study, we examined the comparative effectiveness of prolonged bedaquiline use, which we defined as 7 to 11 months or at least 12 months relative to a duration of six months. And we studied that with regard to favorable end of treatment outcome among patients that were receiving a longer individualized regimen for a multidrug or rifampin resistant tuberculosis. Now, you used data from the NTB observational study. Can you briefly describe this study? The NTB observational study is one component of a larger NTB initiative, which was funded by the Global Health Agency Unitaid and implemented by three non-governmental partners, so Doctors Without Borders, Partners in Health and Interactive Research and Development, in collaboration with national tuberculosis programs in participating countries. 
And so the goal of the larger NTB initiative was to expand access to bedaquiline and delaminid, which was another drug that had been recently approved at, at the time the initiative began. And the NTB observational study in particular was a prospective cohort study that enrolled patients in 17 countries that were participating in, in the larger NTB initiative. It enrolled over 2,800 patients with rifampin or multidrug resistant tuberculosis who were receiving a longer regimen containing either bedaquiline or delaminid in the context of their national tuberculosis treatment program. So I think there are two unique features of this cohort that are worth highlighting. The first is that patients were treated under routine programmatic conditions. And the second is that we collected standardized detailed longitudinal data throughout the course of treatment, including on events such as regimen changes and adverse events. And it was this longitudinal data that really allowed us to avail of more modern epidemiologic methods at the time of analysis than we would have otherwise been able to. Now you use target trial emulation. Can you explain this to our non-statistical listeners? Sure. Target trial emulation is based on the premise that observational analyses can be guided by defining the causal effect that you would estimate in a trial as the inferential target of your observational study. And so I think this is a very exciting approach to observational analyses because it necessarily requires a very clear specification of the research question. And so the first step in conducting target trial emulation is defining and describing in, in great detail the hypothetical target trial to which you will sort of match your observational analysis. And so this involves not only defining the treatment strategies to be compared, which in our case was comparing bedaquiline for seven to 11 months, or at least 12 months to a duration of six months, but also describing other key elements of the target trial. So things like inclusion criteria, the, back, the content of the background regimen, the beginning and the end of follow-up, what constitutes a protocol deviation. And then once you really have all these details mapped out, you can then move on to the next phase, which is target trial emulation, which involves designing a corresponding analysis to emulate your hypothetical trial. Okay, and how did you emulate your hypothetical trial, uh, target trial using the data from this observational study? Right. So the, the first step that we took was to sort of apply the criteria, you know, our inclusion criteria, our, our background regimen criteria that we, we specified in our target trial. And then we mapped out an analysis that consisted of three steps. It was a cloning, censoring, and weighting approach, which allowed us to account for some in, important biases. So I'll, I'll first just talk about this cloning step, which I think is a little less mainstream, particularly in the context of TB studies. So you can imagine that in a, a randomized clinical trial of bedaquiline duration, participants would be assigned to one of the three bedaquiline duration strategies at the beginning of the trial. In, con in contrast, in an observational study, we only know the patient's actual bedaquiline duration. And so a consequence of that is that patients who receive longer bedaquiline durations will have, by definition, survived to that time. When we classify durations based on the observed duration that that patient actually experienced, 
this can introduce a bias that's known in epidemiology circles as immortal time bias. And so to remedy this, we implemented this cloning step. And this cloning step more closely resembles the treatment assignment that happens at the beginning of a randomized trial and thereby removes the potential for this immortal person time bias. A, a later step of our analysis involved the use of inverse probability weighting, which is an approach to adjust for a bias that can occur because the duration of bedaclin is not determined at random in real life and, and certainly not in our data set. So rather in, in, you know, I think in routine care in general, bedaclin duration is often impacted by numerous factors such as culture status and low BMI and on other indicators of disease severity that evolve throughout the course of treatment. And so the inverse probability step was one of the steps that we employed to address that particular bias. Thank you. So what were the primary findings of your study? The primary finding was that among patients receiving, you know, a longer individualized regimen, which, which in our case, in this particular cohort, tended to be quite strong. Patients were receiving regimens that contained a median of four likely effective drugs that often included linazolid and clofazamine, so other, other potent drugs. So in this context, bedaclin for longer than six months did not appear to approve, improve the probability of treatment success. And I'll also just note that the overall rate of treatment success in this cohort was quite high. 85% of individuals experienced a successful treatment. I think a, a second important finding is that we repeated our analyses, we, we actually conducted what we knew was a biased analysis that did not correct for this immortal person time bias that I mentioned previously. And in that biased analysis, we did see evidence of a benefit of bedaclin use for at least 12 months. So I think that also is an important finding because it reinforces the importance of addressing that bias in, in studies of duration. So James, when, when Molly and her co-authors run an, an unadjusted analysis without inverse probability weighting, they found an increased probability of treatment success with more than 12 months of treatment compared with six months uh, of bedaclin treatment. Uh, what do you make of this finding and, and the importance of their methodological uh, approach? Well, I, I don't want to overstate my, my own expertise here. I'm no statistician. And and, and Molly gave an, an, an excellent description of what is a very complicated approach. But, um, but the basic premise, as she said, of adjusting is that if you do an unadjusted test and find something, and then you would do it again and you adjust for some covariate and the finding disappears, then you've probably identified a confounder or a bias in some fashion. And it was the process of adjusting that prevented you from incorrectly rejecting the null hypothesis, right? We're always starting from a null hypothesis. As to say, there's no association between X and Y. Then we set out to see if the data proves us wrong. And so the null hypothesis for, for Molly's study is that extending bedaclin therapy provides no benefit. So if you do an unadjusted analysis and it looks like there's a benefit, but then you take the time to adjust for all the assorted measurable confounders, that benefit seems to wash away, and that would seem to support the, the importance of their methodology. If someone else had come along, taken her data, and done a less sophisticated analysis, they would have you know, tried to publish a paper that said 12 months of the Aquilin is better. But it, it's sort of a, it's, it's a cautionary tale that if you don't sort of take the time to, to go through your data and analyze it, you know, with, with great attention to detail, then you can kind of draw the wrong conclusions from it. 
Okay, well, let's let's move away from statistics and back to the patient. Based on these findings, do you think six months of bedaclone treatment is enough for patients with multi-drug resistant TB, or should we still consider longer periods of treatment for patients, say, who remain culture positive for prolonged periods or have cavitary or HIV disease? I, I think we don't know. I think this, this study I found very reassuring in that it, you know, in people treated in standard, you know, programmatic settings, that uh, six months seemed to be enough. Um, but as I said, like, these are exciting times for drug-resistant TB, and the, ch- and the field is changing fast, and standard of care keeps changing. You know, the patients in, in this study uh, got, you know, the long regimen of 18 to 24 months. And so you can make a case that if six months of bedaclone is fine, if you've got another 18 months of other drugs sort of on that tail. But, you know, the newer trials seem, you know, the newer regimens like BPAL and BPALM are typically given for six to nine months, and they appear to have extremely high cure rates and very low relapse rates. But they're all still pretty new, and they're, you know, I think time, time will tell. And who comes into clinical trials is not always the same as who is you know, uh, showing up into, into TB programs. And so I think the more and more people that get treated with these regimens, the more clinicians do what they think is right, I think we'll, we'll find out if there are subpopulations that may benefit. But I think for now, from a guideline standpoint, we use the data we have, and I would say six months is sufficient. Molly, you, your study was one of the first observational analysis of drug duration in multi-drug resistant TB. What are the important issues that uh, we need to consider uh, going forward? Thanks. That's a great question. I really agree with James in terms of just how exciting of a time this is for TB treatment research. There are an unprecedented number of recently completed and ongoing trials with regard to treatment that undoubtedly will contribute really important knowledge But at the same time, the latest WHO treatment guidelines highlight a number of critical research gaps for which, to my knowledge, many of which for many do not have a randomized trial planned or underway. And so, you know, these questions include, you know, what is the optimal overall duration of longer treatment? What is the optimal duration in combination of specific drugs? And what are the patient level factors that impact these optimal durations, sort of getting back to that, you know, question as to whether there are certain subgroups that may benefit from, you know, longer duration of either bedaquiline or longer durations of treatment. So I do think there's a role, an important role for observational data, but I think one important point is that in order to be able to leverage observational data to answer these outstanding questions in a rigorous way, and particularly in in patient subgroups that are often underrepresented in trials will need continued investment in in larger longitudinal cohorts. Uh, Molly, do you have any final comments you want to make about your paper? Sure. I just wanted to highlight that I think for our group, uh, sort of a key motivation behind this methodologic work is a belief that good epidemiologic methods really have a role in contributing to health equity. So, you know, if you think about the majority of treatment guidelines that are in existence right now for drug-resistant tuberculosis, most are conditional and based on very low or low certainty evidence. And this has really negative implications for recommendation adoption by countries, funding by donors, and ultimately making it less likely that patients will benefit from 
these advances. And so for this reason, I think ensuring that recommendations are based on the highest quality of evidence through foremost through continued investment of trials, but when trials are not available through rigorous analyses of observational data, that I think that will be really critical to further driving down morbidity and mortality from multidrug and rifampin-resistant tuberculosis. The last thing I'll just note is that for those that are interested in learning more about target trial emulation, there's an excellent open source resource that is available free online. Um, it's a book called What If?, by Miguel Hernan and Jamie Robbins. And it, like I said, it's a it's a free download from the Harvard School of Public Health website. Thank you. James, you have the final word. What, what an honor. I, I would just say my, my compliments to the chef. Uh, you know, I think working with observational data is really hard, but there's, and it's easy to write it off, you know, as sort of statisticians and academics, we, we sort of say, oh, well, you know, it, it was biased, it was this, we're good at sort of punching holes in studies, right? And so it takes a certain resilience to, you know, because there is so much observational data out there. People are collecting data. I mean, it's not always quite as rigorously done as, you know, NTB and sort of methodologically in an observational cohort, but there, there is data out there. And, you know, we don't always have $100 million to, you know, pour into a trial to answer a question, you know, in the cleanest, most precise way possible. And so I think trying to make use of this data, and, and so I, I applaud Molly and her co-authors, you know, especially Dr. Hernan, who really has kind of pioneered this idea of, of target trial emulation. So, yes, strong work. So I'd like to thank uh, Dr. Franke and Dr. Bruce very much for this interesting discussion. To the listener, to read the articles discussed in this podcast, please visit the podcast homepage, www.atsjournals.org. To listen to more episodes of Out of the Blue, visit our page on iTunes or Google Play. And you can also uh, subscribe to stay updated whenever new episodes are available. Uh, so thank you again for listening. <laughs>